Welcome to the College Sports Insider, presented by the NCAA and Champion Magazine. I'm Jack Ford. Delighted to have Gary Williams with us, who's the Director of Athletics at Wittenberg University. And we're going to talk about something that might surprise some people. If, if somebody says to you, all right, um, what's your image of, of bad sportsmanship or bad conduct in stands for games? I suspect that the first answer is not going to be Division Three athletics. You know, Gary, you and I were talking about before. In, in my mind, I've always, I've always loved the Division Three model. Mm-hmm. You know, you the, the student athletes can be as engaged and as competitive as they want to be, but they have time to be real students. Yeah. The student part of of the equation, if you would. Yeah. And I guess maybe because of that, I, in my mind, I think it's it's the utopian sports model. Well, I think it's utopian yeah, too. And, huh? it, and it is in a lot of ways. Yeah. But I was surprised to find that you act, you all, I say you all, it's a generalization, but Division Three. one of the problems they found with was the difficulties with sportsmanship and fan behavior. Yeah. How, how is that happening in Division Three? Well, I think, Jack, that when we started all of this, we began to look and realize that you're right. Division three is a different model, and we, it poses in and of itself this microcosm of all that is in the world. You know, we have schools that are so diverse across 450 that there are amazing opportunities within this division uh, to get this really intimate experience. So you've got some places that will uh, bring as many as you know. Two, three, four, five thousand people for an event, and then you've got some where literally there might be a couple hundred, and everybody in the stands has a vested interest that's on a very personal level, and I think that's the one difference between our division and other divisions, which is the vast majority of people that go to a Division Three athletic contest are there because they have a personal interest. In somebody that's playing in that event, that, that's interesting observation. Because again, you know, you know, d- d- just this past fall, I've been to games at a variety of places. Mm-hmm. I've been down to Ole Miss uh, for a game, sure. and and I bumped into people who were there just, you know, not they had they didn't have particular connections. No. Ole Miss, LSU, but it was just an interesting adventure for yeah. them. Yeah, you know. So yeah, I wouldn't anticipate that they are going to get so dramatically involved that it would be a problem. But right. as you said, if, if, if you have 100 or 200 people on a weekday game, yep. they're all there for a particular reason and a particular affiliation. So. Yeah. And that creates problems how then? Well, so, um, so one of the unique things about me as a person and a professional is I've had a really eclectic background. I started uh, like you. I started as a football player mm-hmm. and I, was in, I started as a football coach and an academic advisor. And one of my passion areas that no one ever knew about because at that time I wore glasses uh, was I actually was a high high school and a collegiate basketball official. And so I had this really unique perspective because literally I would take my glasses off, put in my contacts, and people didn't recognize me. And so I would travel around in in the area and do high school games. And then I started doing college basketball. And so here I am, a college administrator at a school in Wisconsin, uh, Carthage College. That's where I graduated Mm -hmm. from, and I worked for many years. Mm -hmm. And then I started going to different schools, and I was an official. So I would arrive to a school in my Carthage gear, and I would actually see people that I interact with at NCAA meetings, conference meetings, all kinds of things. And then, like, literally within a matter of two hours would just completely be transformed 
by putting on a striped shirt and black pants and putting a whistle in my mouth, I became public enemy number one. And mm-hmm. so what so what gives what gave me a really unique perspective on this committee and actually, quite frankly, throughout my, my whole career was this ability to know what that felt like yeah. is. And so when I wit- witnessed firsthand um, players, coaches, fans, everybody, it is a very personal atmosphere because that person that they were coming to see play means the world to them. Mm-hmm. And it always means the world to a lot of, to every parent, every uh, guardian that goes and watches their son or daughter compete, uh, grandson, you name it, any family member. It's it's very personal. But when there's only like a couple hundred people and they say something. It's magnified. It's magnified because you can hear it. And so, and then it just, it, it just, it, it just adds and it builds and it builds and it builds. And so it's amazing in our gyms how we pride ourselves on this combination of being a student and an athlete in a way that's m- more unique than the than any other division. It's, it's what we're predicated on. No athletic scholarships. Everything is built to be, quote unquote, an extension of the classroom. And so, and yet, we came to realize that there are many times where we're putting on events, and it isn't so much the student athletes that are causing the problems; it's everyone else around them. Yeah. Uh, for years, we we concentrated a lot of rules, uh, regulations, a lot of points of emphasis about sportsmanship on the field. And I would say, for the most part, and again, everything's relative, Jack. But for the most part, I believe that. What's happening on those fields are really pure and really amazing, right. very powerful uh, in terms of the competitiveness and the respect level. But then all of a sudden what we started seeing was this uptick of, of parents, of, of other it, fans, of it, other students and, that and, causing problems. And, and on the field, even if you have an, an emotional explosion in the moment yeah. – it's controlled. It is very because you have so. coaches, you have officials, Absolutely. you have teammates. You know, it's, so it stops. But if it's in the stands, who's controlling it? Right, and that and that's how is that being taken care of? Agreed, and and that was the that was really what the irony of this situation was. Um, at our university, for instance, I mean, we'll have a football game. A couple thousand people will be there. We have a staff. Almost all hands are on deck, and I can count on my hand honestly over these last four years at my university where we've really had a problem. But I can tell you the number of times I can count double on the on my hands the number of times when there's been 50 people at a at a soccer match, or 150 people at a, at a lacrosse match, and all of a sudden, you've got all kinds of things happening. Partly because your guard is down, there are fewer people there, so you have fewer staff that are present, and then the next thing you know, one or two fans is magnified, and then it becomes personal. So. Whether it's towards an official, whether it's towards an opponent, whether it's toward the coach, I mean, you name it. And it, it becomes very, very personal at that point because unlike the stadiums that you're articulating, right. that stuff's happening all the time. Right. And this is something that I think our division, you know, we kind of have an identity complex to some degree too because we want to be like what's seen on ESPN. We want to be like what we see uh, uh, everybody's live stream nowadays. I mean, there are very few Division three schools where you can travel across the country. You don't have to travel anymore. You can literally watch Division three on your i on your iPhone and on your i on your iPad. And so, streaming and all of those things have become it's made it's made sports so fun across all divisions. But what 
what makes ours even more unique is that they want to have those same experiences, but it's just a shrunken model of it. But when that shrinks, it just exacerbates right. some of the now things. You're magnifying yeah, you're some magnifying of some of the things you're hearing and seeing. And that's where I think we landed to in realizing that we needed to do something to better address some of this. So the, the, you actually found that it was significant enough that you were going to create a, a working group, basically a D3 working group, that it required that much of an investment? Well, I got voluntold. I mean, I got encouraged by some... Well, the Division Three staff of Dan, uh, Dr. Louise McCleary, right. Jay Jones, um, they, they are amazing leaders in our division, and we're very thankful for them. And they... Um, in response to much of what they heard from the membership, which is one of the things that also is really awesome about Division Three, is I think we've had many different working groups from uh, recruiting working groups uh, to look at the, the, the calendar of the recruiting season, to look at financial aid, to look at diversity and inclusion issues. So these working groups have existed for years. This one emerged. And so when it emerged, um, I got tapped on the shoulder by Jay. And uh, I remember the phone call. And uh, I, all I could think to myself is this is such a large, amazingly huge task, and yet I was like, I'm in. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's my— Well, if, I, I'm sure it was part of your perspective. It As is. As you said before, you understood it at I a did. level that maybe some other people might not understand. Yeah, it, it was personal for me, too, because I can remember so many times thinking to myself, you know, just because I changed clothes and contacts— I'm not any different of a person than I was, you know, two, an hour ago when I was in my car driving to this event or literally maybe on the phone with a staff member act in my role as an athletic administrator. And then I walk into a gym and become an official and all of a sudden everything seemed to change. And I'm like, why is it changing? You know, what is it about this dynamic? And then, and then one of the other things I got a chance to see firsthand, which I think helps me every day in being a great administrator, is I got to see how everyone else was doing it. And that was also something that we recognized, is that at the end of the day, experiences from place to place are so different. Uh, experiences, in, experiences in sport to sport were a little bit different. Uh, gym to gym, conference to conference. And while there's some of that that's good, there's another side of that, which I think we really wanted to tackle, which was we needed to, to create a deliverable that we felt could help our small colleges and universities in Division Three, and take a program that was going to be more than just something to deal with an unruly fan, but to really take something and create an experience, to create this, this well – to coin a phrase, a magical experience, <laughs> because that's who we ended up partnering with, was the Disney Institute. How, how did that come about, the, the, the partnership <laughs> with the Disney Institute? Well, there's my story and there's Jay's story. But <laughs> I, since Jay's not on, I get to tell my story, which is from the very first day that Jay and I spoke, uh, I was insistent that we looked at someone like Disney to partner mm -hmm. with. So when you're looking at Division Three. Um, one of the great benefits is the, the sheer number of us. One of, one of the difficulties in our division is always funding and resources. And we are, you know, a small couple percentage points of the large NCA uh, 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 budget. In the same token, um, when you have an opportunity 
to have resources dedicated, you want to try to maximize those. And so the Disney Institute, uh, we were looking at like places like the Disney Institute or, or Macy's. Or um, at one point, we, we, we did look at the airline industry. That was uh, an interesting. <laughs> uh, and so thankfully, the airline industry, thanks to uh, some wonderful YouTube videos that go went viral <laughs> on social media, they got eliminated from the race. Uh, so, But at the end of the day, we, when we looked, we were trying to say, how can we create something that that we can partner with who does who who does the best at what they do in terms of customer service, in terms of the way that they treat people, and so the we, experience the experience. So because that would help us then with credibility. So it's one thing to create something of your own. It's another to partner with somebody. It's a it's another to partner with somebody who's known across the globe as a leader in something. And now we get to provide a little snapshot of that to every school in our division. And so they get this opportunity to be trained in a way by a world-class uh, leadership and training development center in the Disney Institute. And that's something that I really find to be one of the greatest gifts and byproducts of this, which is not only are we able to provide a framework for them to to view their game experience, but we're also able to take professionals on all kinds of campuses across the country and give them this high-level training that, quite frankly, most of our campuses could not afford to right. do. It's they're, The Disney Institute, while I'm sure they're knocking on the door of nonprofits, it's not often that a nonprofit can afford to provide this level of training for their employees. And right. so so that was another really huge, uh, what I think is going to be a huge byproduct of this, is, is this opportunity to give us not only something for our campuses, but also as a professional development tool for people who are who really, really, really will take this and use it in other ways on their campus, maybe beyond the game day experience, but into how we recruit students, how we retain students, how how we attract uh, donors. I mean, there's all kinds of ways this can spiral in the future. You you got together with the Disney Institute and your working group, and, and you, you crafted an approach to training. Mm-hmm. And I, I know there were basically four training keys that that came out of all sure. this. Let me ask you about each of them. The first one, and it seems fairly obvious, and it's it's about safety. Now, just because yes. it seems fairly obvious doesn't mean it's not easy. It's easily resolved. So, uh, what is it then that is the focus of the, the the training when you're talking about safety? So, so agreed, Jack. Like it is obvious, but it's not always obvious because I think sometimes when we think about um, events or game day experiences, we think about um, winning and losing, or or like putting on you know a basketball game, right? Well, at some level, if you look at the end result of every Division three sport, is a championship, and that championship, that last match between the last two teams in the whole division, is run like clockwork. If you look at the manual that we have, it, it starts from top to bottom. And it gives you, it tells you when to wake up, when to do your walkthrough, <laughs> when to go to the locker room, when to come out of the locker room. I mean, to the T. And one of the things that having been also a championship manager of a brand new sport in Division Three, so we started men's volleyball and I was the first national chair of men's volleyball. And so groundbreaking that from ground zero, we were literally establishing the very first championship. So we got the chance and opportunity to look at it 
a championship from a whole nother lens. We could take the little bit of the best of all the worlds mm -hmm. and create them in our experience. Obviously, being very sensitive to women's volleyball, making sure that there was a lot of similarities, but then also just looking and seeing how it works. So for over a whole year as a committee, I got an opportunity to travel to different places to look at how men's volleyball was happening all over the country. And then we got to put together a championship. And so, so starting from that place, we realized quickly as a committee that championship experience starts from the very first scrimmage that you have. Because that scrimmage, those people in the stands remember, that's their Super Bowl. Right. That's their championship. Right, right. Yeah. Like those parents have been saving countless dollars their lives to send their child to, to college and they get to play collegiate athletics. Yeah. That's their Super Bowl, and so that's how, why it's So how do you replicate the championship event at the smaller event? Absolutely. Still give them the same sense of exhilaration and yes. excitement and joy um, and, and provide the same kind of great raucous atmosphere that the players want. Absolutely. But still make it safe. Correct. And so when you look at the end result of an NCAA championship, one of the very first things it talks about is how every site is to be a neutral site. And it's mm -hmm. to be treated. So in essence... The NCAA comes to that site to run a championship. They bring in a rep. Your gym becomes their gym. Mm -hmm. And when I was an official, I learned very quickly. But the nature of the rules, once the game started, it actually was my game. Mm -hmm. It wasn't owned by the people around me. Right. I owned the game. Right. And so that's where safety comes into play. Is in the end, we have to remove as, as site managers. It may be in my gym, but it's not just my event. It's being shared by the conference that we play for, the two teams that are there. And ultimately, the very first thing that has to happen is we need to make sure that everybody has a chance to play, to cheer, to officiate in a manner that put, gives them the best ability to do that. And the best way you do that is by the very fundamentals of Maslow, I believe it was, who it's about safety. Right. It's about feeling secure. Right. Because when you think about anything you've ever done in your life, like this studio, I mean, it's like your sanctuary, right? You're safe in here. So that's why you produce awesome podcasts because it's that place. We want to replicate that first and foremost. Right. Safe, secure, so that people feel they can be at their very best. And you talk about doing that. The other keys you talk about, responsiveness, uh, dignity, and, and to get ultimately the experience. Yeah. So how are you then training because this is, you know, it's a, it's a delicate balance. It is. You, you want to make sure that the, the notion of excitement and exhilaration Absolutely. is a part of the experience. But you also want to make sure that the guy next to me is not ruining, ruining my experience. Absolutely. So it goes back to what one of the fundamental tenets of our division in, which is this is an extension of the classroom. And so I often turn to people or look at people and ask them, like, if you walked into a classroom today, would you just start yelling and screaming at the professor? Mm -hmm. But yet you'd want that to be an energizing experience and you'd want that professor to be feel safe and the students to feel safe so that they could speak as they wanted to, and they could be have that freedom of speech and be able to do the things that they feel like they need to do. Um, and so that's our quest, is to find a way to take the living laboratory of sport and to learn that what's happening out there is one piece of that student, those coaches, that referee, the scorers keep, it's one piece of their lives. And for this two hours, there's nothing more powerful than their ability to express themselves 
in their athleticism. Uh, just like someone who's playing in an orchestra will do the same thing, or somebody who's in theater will go out on a stage and express themselves. And there is a code of conduct that all of these other performers have. And I believe very strongly that there is a code of conduct that we need to have in athletics. And that while at the same token, maybe I'm maybe I'm too Pollyannish, but we want the best of both teams because that's what brings out the best mm -hmm. in everybody. Well, you want it in a place where people feel energetic and enthusiastic, but it's not where you take it to that place where it's personal, where words are meant to hurt. Mm -hmm. Those things really don't contribute. In the end of the day, you, you are there as a fan to experience and provide momentum and enthusiasm and energy, but you're also but you also have to be cautious enough to know that just because you walked in the door, just because you pay tuition, just because you paid for a ticket, it doesn't necessarily give you a right to not act in a dignified way towards other people and to lose that sense of respect just because somebody's wearing a different color shirt. That is somebody's daughter. That is somebody's son. That person refing the game. He is the grandfather or father of some child. I mean, at the end of the day, we're people that are going out there to do the absolute best that we can and let that be your guide. So how then do you train? And what do you say to, to the folks who are on site handling yeah. this? Um, if they've got... You know, let, let's talk about the, the guy in the stand who's who's not just screaming, you know, great for their son or daughter, but essentially attacking the other team's son or daughter. Yeah. I, I will tell you, both of my children grew up to be Division One athletes. They both yes. played lacrosse at Yale. In high school, I moved around. I did not <laughs> stay in the stands yeah. because I, you know, I, I, I was the kind of father that I didn't, I didn't say anything, but I was always there for, I'd nod for it. They'd look to me, I'd give mm. them a nod, I'd give them a thumbs up, I'd give them something, but I'm not going to scream. But I also know that I wouldn't want to be in the stands if somebody, you know, if all of a sudden, you know, my daughter goes down, somebody starts screaming, great, you know, knock her out yeah, kind of thing. Exactly. Because I'm concerned that uh, what I might, how I might respond to it. And mm -hmm. I don't want to be in that situation. So there are a couple of ways that you could tell people to do it. Somebody starts yelling, you could say right away, take them out, throw them out. Correct. Right. But is that the best way? <laughs> Well, I to mean, handle it. I mean, at some point in time, you might have to. You may. But, but so what do you tell as a consequence of all of this? And what are people being told to, in, in order to, at that site, to make sure that you have the, the combination of safety and responsiveness and dignity so yeah. that you can have the experience? How do they handle that? So I would tell you that while, so this training is really about establishing a framework. It's, it's uh, establishing a common vernacular. It's establishing some common expectations that will hopefully be adopted by not just me, but by, by my school, but by a couple other schools. And then it's all about the domino effect, right? And so if all of us start speaking in the same language, if all of us start thinking in the same framework, and we all strive for a more consistent environment, then at the in the end, that will help us in terms of being able to talk to fans who may be stepping over the line. So often, so often, um, while it becomes very personal for a fan, they forget when you approach them that it's almost as if they have this out-of-body experience, right? They're, they're not even sure what they're saying half yeah. the time. But when you do speak with them, often you'll hear things like, well, you should see what the parents at such and such right. school does. Or, you know, if you think I'm bad, then, <laughs> you know, go there. And 
And I'll, I can tell you in my experience, very rarely have I ever won a battle with an unruly fan by being unruly myself. Right. You win a battle with them, and it's not even about winning a battle. It's about getting them to enjoy the, the game and to see it for what it's worth. But you have to have a conversation with that person. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, you have to humanize it. And when you humanize it to them, and that's something I think this training will help us do, is it, it'll just bring us all better together so that when somebody says, oh, hey, by the way, you know, well, you should see what happens at such and such school. I'm like, you know, it's really yeah. interesting because I'm a part of a training session. You see that banner on the wall, you know, game day, the D3 way? You see that training session, this is the same training session that's actually held at that school. And, you know, it's interesting because I know so-and-so athletic right. director. I know right. so-and-so facility manager. And I don't, I'm just not sure that they would, they would uh, mm-hmm. accept that same type of behavior. Again, maybe I'm being Pollyannish, but mm-hmm. when you humanize it to them, it starts to reduce their guard. And then you kind of come to find out what, what's really wrong. And half the time it's just because they had a really bad day mm-hmm. or it was a really tough drive in. Or there's so many other factors right. that go into right. why somebody acts out in an athletic contest. Yeah. Um, but for us, I don't know, Jack, if this will be a silver bullet. I won't. I won't. I won't tell you that people are going to walk away feeling like they're on top of the world. But one thing we have seen in each of the training sessions up to this point and in the training session we're going to have at the convention and in all the subsequent training sessions is a group of people who now are going to get introduced to these concepts and this framework who also are going to get linked into a network of other people. And it's just going to continue to build itself to the point where there's going to be a lot of people speaking the same language, a lot of people who are thinking safety first. What can I do to respond? How do I do it in a dignified way? And how do I create the most amazing experience? And when we as facility managers and athletic directors remember that we are bringing people into our house to put on an event and that it's not just us that we're hosting, I think that in and of itself would be a huge victory in terms of the way fans act. Because why do fans act? Well, maybe because they feel threatened by things that are going on. You know, obviously, you can never, ever, ever take out that will, or act like it's never going to happen. But what do you do when it happens? And how do you approach it? And how do you create this framework so that when it does happen, everyone from the first person on the, to- on the list to, the, uh, to all the work-study students to even the volunteers know who to call, who to talk to, who's the best to intervene in that situation? How do the the student athletes? Do you think how do they see all of this <laughs> about them, um, in in terms of you know what's happening in the stands and and the disruption and the confrontation that can be caused? So I think it's really fascinating because when when Jay first helped me try to get the student athlete advisory committee, who's some of our greatest leaders in Division Three in terms of the student, they're, they're the voice, they're the the body. They, I, they were like, why is this even an issue? Like, what, what are you even worried about right now? We want, we, we, we did an activity with them called inbounds and out of bounds. Mm-hmm. And we told, we would give them scenarios and they would tell us whether they thought that was inbounds or out of bounds. And the number of things they thought were inbounds that we thought were out of bounds and vice versa. <laughs> it was like, oh, it was, it was a little, yeah, it was very different things. perspective. Yeah. And then, and then we started to really, you know, dig into it a little bit. And I think after some reflection, the Student Athlete Advisory Committee came back and said, you know what? You know what? You're really right. And if we are going to be true as a division 
about what we say, who we say we are, which is a student. It's all about the student athlete experience from the way our compliance rules are set up to the way our campus structures are set up. It is about putting the student athlete first. And if that's the case, then we should ask them what they want. And they wrote a letter and they've got a letter drafted that they're willing to share with campuses that says, dear parent, dear peer, dear fraternity brother or sorority sister, thank you for coming to my event, but this is what I need out of you. And it's a, it's a very powerful letter that I think will be a really amazing tool that we can use going forward to try to get people to understand that you think you're acting in a way that they want, yeah. but in the end, they might be looking up at you thinking, mom, dad, seriously, like, I'm, this isn't worth it. Like, I want you to cheer for me. I, quick story. We were having a lacrosse match. So we, back to lacrosse, mm-hmm. you're, you, had, you, you were talking about lacrosse earlier. We had a match. We were playing um, a non-conference opponent that's just down the road from us. We were beating them by six goals in the first half. I mean, it was getting ugly fast. And our fans, student sections, just kept on and on and on the other team. And I was standing there for a little while, and I just – it was right on that border, right? It was it – was, Quirky, it was funny, it was snarky. Mm-hmm. It wasn't ter- it wasn't to the point where it was vulgar, but you could tell it was and all of a sudden that other team it lit a fire under them. They were not only were they upset about the way they were playing, but now they've got this group of students who's drawing all this attention to them. And the next thing you know, they go on this amazing run. And our students kept on them and they just kept getting more. And finally I turned to the group of students, I'm like, hey, do you not realize right now that there is only 300 people here. You're 50, and you're throwing all your energy at that team. Right. And you're providing inspiration And you're for giving them. them inspiration. I'm like, what if you had done that for us? How much more debilitating would that have been for another team to just keep hearing positive messages about our team? What would it change the psychology of that? I guess I'll never know the answer, yeah. but I know we lost the match by one goal right. after being up by a lot, and we could never get the momentum back. And so... Maybe it's an anecdote of one, not a great experiment, but it's, yeah. I think, kind of worth taking a look at. And as you said, I, for me, the notion of, of handling these conflicts um, co- with a conversation. Yeah. Uh, I, I go back at the situation. I'm, uh, my daughter's in high school, is playing a lacrosse game, and, and one of her teammates is being berated by her own father. Mm. And everybody's hearing it. And mm-hmm. it, it was one of these things where I, I thought, I, I didn't know him well, but he just seemed to be different at a game than he was when you'd see him other circumstances. Yeah. And I sort of would be walking around at one point in a timeout, and, and my daughter actually mouthed to me, said, Daddy, can you do something about mm-hmm. him? Now I'm in a situation, all right, okay, now, now what do I do? And I, what I, I did, my instinct was, and, and you know, I went over, sort of just kind of got next to him and just said, you know, you probably don't realize it, but your voice is really carrying. Sure. And, and I, I think you're upsetting your own daughter. And his first reaction was almost like, you know, who are you to tell me? Exactly. You know, and, you know, I didn't, I, I followed my, you know, I was, I was a bouncer all through college and law school. <laughs> but for a guy who had a great place that, that all the college kids went to, and the first thing he said to me is, I don't want you in any fights. If you can talk yourself yes. out of all of these problems and calm things down, 
that's what I'm paying yes. you to do. Yes. And it was an interesting lesson. And I learned that, that you know, if you got up to a guy and you just sort of talked with him and, and talked him through and calmed it down, more often than not, you could work it out. You know, even with a drunk in a bar. Absolutely. And here's somebody who's a parent in the stands. Yes. So, you know, you would like to think that the approach that you're talking about now would have value. You would. Uh, and so, Jack, now we have another thing in common because mm-hmm. not only was I a basketball official or I was a basketball official, I can relate to our footballness now. Right. And I can also relate to the fact that throughout my college days, I was running a bar in Milwaukee right. during a <laughs> festival. And Well, you know exactly what we're talking about. Amazing right? experiences when you put yourself in those situations. And right. you're right. When you're rationalizing it with somebody who's not rational, that's like the epitome of sure. – and so many times in our, in our athletic events, I just – I. You almost chuckle to yourself to think, but you're right. This is what's hard is how do you provide voice to these voiceless student athletes who are out there competing and looking up at the stands thinking, you know, I'm like, I I really don't want that to happen. And it is their own family member or it's their own. It's somebody that really matters to them. And those are the tough conversations. I'll I'll tell you those are, are the toughest. But here's something you said that I think is powerful. And that is something that I believe I'm really fortunate. I have a PhD in leadership, so I studied this and studied the, the human personality, and I, and I love personality uh, leadership. And one of the things you said that was the most powerful thing was you did it. It wasn't an administrator. Mm-hmm. It, wasn't another, um, it wasn't another one of me. It was you. And you did it because you stepped up. And you impacted that person. In, and that voice, you heard it in a different way. This is what we're looking at doing. When you are trying, you're gonna, we're trying to start changing a culture. And again, I'm not naive. This is an uphill battle. And it's going to be something that will never maybe go, never go away possibly. But I know one thing. If we can start by just establishing what we want to have happen and put the ground rules out there, more people than not will drive the speed limit when they're told. You will always have someone who's going to go over the speed limit. I just found that out coming from uh, coming, <laughs> coming from Ohio to Indianapolis. You'll find people who will drive under the speed limit, right. which will also irritate you sometimes. The same thing on I-70 especially. But at the end of the day, you you know what the speed limit is. And that's what I think some, some of this is that it's missing, which is we don't sometimes even know what the limits are. What is What are the boundaries? People Let's will respect a way it. of posting the yes. limits, if you will. Yeah, post the limits so, and give people a sense. Right. And then allow them, the audience, to say, you're right. You might go over these limits and here's yeah. the conversation that we're going to have. Or, um, And then, again, when people start looking at each other saying, you know what? That's really awesome, but we don't do that here. That's when it's powerful. It's no different than on my own staff. Yeah. You know, I've been an athletic director now at my institution for four years. When I first got there, it was all about whatever I said, and everybody was just kind of trying to figure things out. And over time, you start to, you know, you make a few hires, you get a few people that buy in, and the next thing you know, you start hearing your voice in in them as they're speaking to other people. And that's when you realize, you're like, oh my gosh, like, you're listening, and leadership is growing, and you're getting a chance to make an impact on someone's life. And that's what this is about. Top-notch training from a world-class place trying to provide the most information and framework possible and inspire people to say, we want the best experience. We want energy and enthusiasm. But there is a line. And the line starts with, is this place safe? And when it's not, 
How do we respond? When we have to interact with somebody, do we do it with dignity and respect? And how can we make sure that everybody is performing at their very, very best? Because that's when we get to see really amazing things happen. Well, I, I think it's a fascinating approach. Again, going back to what I said in the very beginning when you opened this up, I just have such a, a great belief in the value of the D3 model and how it works. And well, thank so you. My hope is that this, and, and, and by the way, this is an approach that I, I think, I, I, hopefully it's successful for you all, but it's yeah. the approach that I think the rest of us could use for almost everything in our lives, well, personally, professionally, yeah. societally. Um, there's a real value to all of this. Yes. And hopefully, it, hopefully it'll do... What you want it to do. You yeah, know, Jack, what, you what you're saying is so true because when we were going through this training with the Disney Institute, it really brought to mind like when you're put in a situation, you have to have this check check mark, these this list of what's first, what's second, what's third. Like why are you going to make a decision? And in our mind, why safety's first is nothing's more paramount than safety. And so at the end of the day, I want all of our people to make decisions first and foremost about safety. I don't want them to worry about what it's going to cost. I mean, within reason, I hope mm-hmm. you understand. But mm-hmm. if, if it's about safety, then act. We'll deal with it later, but get the environment safe first, and then let's process. And same thing for anything that we do on our campuses. I'm talking – I took this training for these last two years, and boy, I am just like filled with such energy about how we also can create these same type of standards for how we recruit, how we retain students, which are all key pieces to Division Three. Division Three is predicated on recruitment retention and resources. We talk about discovering, dedicating, developing skills. All of these things are all about how do we create a framework so that people know when they have to act and when they need to act exactly what values they use to make these decisions by. Take the guesswork out, Jack. Take it all out because then that way you start to you start to get into habits. Habits form uh, practices, practices, and the next thing you know, you've got a culture. And that's what this is after. It's the start of a really inspiring, what I hope to be culture beyond the game day experience, but into their lives on and off the field. Well, hopefully, uh, our, our thanks again to Gary Williams, Director of Athletics at Wittenberg University. Gary, really interesting conversation. Yeah. Uh, my hope is we'll get together maybe a year from now, and, and you can give us an update and see how things are progressing here. I would love it, that, it, it just sounds like it has such potential. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you one thing. I won't be putting on the stripes any, anytime <laughs> soon. So. Limitations. Yeah, for limitations everybody. for everybody. Hey, Gary, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Jack. It. That does it for us for this edition of the College Sports Insider. I'm Jack Ford. Thanks for joining us. We'll look forward to talking with you again real soon. 